Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from SafeAdeen.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, SafeAdeen.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeaddeen.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello and welcome to another Bitcoin Standard Podcast seminar. Today's guest is Jimmy Song, a Bitcoin developer and author who's written two books, 
One is called programming Bitcoin on the technical side of Bitcoin and how to program uh, Bitcoin applications and how to work on Bitcoin as a programmer. And the second, he co-authored with a group of authors and it is called Thank God for Bitcoin, the creation and redemption of money. Jimmy's also a good friend of mine and uh, he's been in Bitcoin for quite a while. So I'm sure he's going to have a lot of interesting stories to tell us uh, about his time in Bitcoin. So Jimmy, thank you very much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. Um, there is a third book that maybe I should uh, put out there. It's the Little Bitcoin book. I also wrote that with a bunch of other people. So oh, that's uh, right. Yes, yeah. he also yeah. co-wrote the Little Bitcoin book, which is a great uh, little intro to Bitcoin uh, with a bunch of authors that uh, gets to the uh, core of the main uh, value proposition of Bitcoin. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's a good book. Also, I highly recommend it. So uh, to begin with, Jimmy, tell us about how you found Bitcoin and uh, what attracted you to it. And I don't even think you've told me that story before. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so 2011, I was uh, working at a startup and I was reading a website called Slashdot. And uh, for those of you that don't know, it's a tech geek website. Um, you know, you go there to see what new tech news are, you know, like uh, Here's a new Mac laptop, or here's the newest Linux distro, um, and here's you know these uh, patent uh, trolls that are doing something weird or something like that. Um, and there was a story on there that I had uh, that I saw that and I didn't know anything about, and it was uh, Bitcoin reaches dollar parity, and I couldn't even parse that sentence at that point. I was like, what What's dollar parity, and how can something have dollar parity? Um, and it was only when I read the story and started understanding it that I was like, oh, wow, this is something crazy. And almost immediately after learning that it had a 21 million limit, I immediately wanted more. Uh, I, wa I wanted some. And this is, I think, driven by sort of like a human instinct for something that is scarce. Um, and I tried to buy some using PayPal or um, uh, you know, any credit card or anything like that. And I couldn't find a single place that would do that. The only place that I could find where I can actually acquire Bitcoin at the time was Mt. Gox. And of course, it wasn't easy to get money to an exchange in Japan at the time. Um, what you had to do back then was transfer money to a money transmission service called Dwala um, using your bank account. And then uh, after three to five days, then they would, um, you know, link your account with your Mt. Gox account. And that would take another three to five days. And I thought it was just, uh, you know, I started on creating the Dwala account and it, 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 it just seemed like too much work. So I just said, forget it. I'm not going to buy it. <laughs> uh, let me try to mine some. Um, I wasn't successful in mining. I tried to use like an AWS server that I had access to as a, uh, you know, as a startup guy. Um, but of course, that was nowhere near enough. I think uh, by then GPUs uh, were sort of dominating, so it, like CPUs were not going to be near enough. Uh, but yeah, that that was my first introduction to it. And later that summer, it went from one dollar to thirty dollars. And at that point, I was like, okay, I, I really need to get in. This this like all of my instincts about this thing are correct. It is scarce. It is, uh, you know not controlled by a central government, so I should go and buy some. Uh, so, you know, I decided to buy some right around then, and that's uh, that's my origin story, I guess, of Bitcoin. 
Nice. And so uh, when did you uh, shift to programming on Bitcoin and uh, shifting to Bitcoin professionally, you know, not just uh, buying and holding? Mm. Yeah, so 2013, um, well, 2012, 2013, I had just moved to Austin and uh, I was, um, we, we had some real estate transactions that we had to do from the previous uh, place that we were at, which was Boston, um, Boston to Austin. Uh, but uh, there, there was a condo that we, uh, we had in Boston. And I was like, okay, what, what do I do with all this money? Um, you know, after paying back my parents when they, you know, cause they helped us out and tried to get the interest and all that. Um, we, I, we wanted to do something with the money that, uh, that we would be getting. Where, where do we put the money? Um, so I, I looked deeper into Bitcoin because it was starting to rally again. Um, and uh, I decided, okay, you know, like there, there's some money. Let's, let's go put it into Bitcoin. And I was like, you know, I should really learn how this works. So I, I started, um, you know, digging a little deeper. A few more of my friends by then had started getting interested in Bitcoin. Uh, so they, were, uh, they weren't programmers, so they were asking me questions. I'm like, I don't know, but I'll go find out. So I, I started uh, looking into all of that. Um, and that April bubble of 2013, where it went from more or less like 10 bucks all the way to 266 and then back down to 50 again. Um, that was when I started to read a lot of the technical underpinnings and stuff. Um, and I started contributing to some open source projects that weren't Bitcoin related. So I, I, I had some idea of how those things work. Uh, so when I uh, when it started rallying again in October, I was like, OK, I really need to, you know, uh, do some programming with this stuff if, if I can. And there was a Reddit, uh, there was a subreddit called Jobs for Bitcoin. Um, and there was a guy that had posted, okay, Python developer wanted it. I'm like, I'm, I'm a Python developer and I would love to make money in Bitcoin. Uh, so he, he was based out of the Ukraine and he wanted help on his open source project and he wasn't getting enough interest. So he was like, I'll, I'll just pay you in Bitcoin to work on uh, this open source project. So I was like, okay. Um, and it was Bitcoin related. It was something called Color Coins, which I work for. Um, from like October to like March, uh, something like that, five months. Um, and still to this day, probably some of the best per hourly rates that I've ever received because I was, of course, getting paid in Bitcoin. Um, but that's how I, I got into it. And I, I contributed to some other stuff. There was a project called BTCD, which is a Go-based um, you know, full node implementation and had to learn, like the best way for me to learn at least is to be kind of forced into it. and. You know, I, I had to learn about HD wallets and Bit32 when I was implementing color coins and stuff like that. Um, I had to learn how how to figure out inputs and outputs and what UTXOs are. Um, and, you know, when I was doing the BTCD stuff, uh, I had to learn elliptic curve cryptography and, you know, finite fields and what all of that meant. And, uh, you know, learning it at like sort of like a very basic level. Um, and that ultimately led me to teaching other people the same thing because it turns out that you know, there wasn't a good resource for learning all of that stuff. Like the, one of the hardest things about programming Bitcoin is knowing where to start. And I was very frustrated as sort of like a developer, um, like trying to learn that stuff. And that ultimately led me to 
you know, doing my seminars and writing my book, uh, Programming Bitcoin, because I, I was just so incredibly frustrated and teaching. Uh, it turns out that others were too. And, um, you know, teaching them ended up being a thing. Yeah. And it worked out. Yeah. Uh, probably those Bitcoin rates, uh, you know, the hourly rates will maybe be your kid's annual salary at some point in the future. <laughs> it might already be. I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to say. Yeah, the number go up technology works in uh, weird ways. So tell us uh, about your first book, uh, Programming Bitcoin. What, uh, what is the case for learning to program Bitcoin? You know, most Bitcoiners don't know how to program. And I think arguably that's going to always be the case just because, well, maybe not. But primarily, I think, you know, uh, money, we're always going to have, the, the world's going to have more money users than programmers. That's just the nature of uh, money. Everybody needs money, but not everybody needs to program, I think, at least for now. Uh, so for the majority of Bitcoiners that don't know how to program, why should they learn to program? What's in it for them? Yeah, I, the main thing for me is being able to level up your game. Um, and you might not be at the point where you're able to program um, sort of like a a light node from scratch, which is basically what I teach in the book. Um, but, uh, you know, the ability to level up your game and sort of like learn more about the internals is, is a crucial part of what keeps Bitcoin central, uh, decentralized. A lot of altcoins, for example, have like code bases that are completely unintelligible unintelligible and you basically just have to trust whoever is in charge um the ability to audit the uh, code and see what's going on and understand how everything works um that's a key part of keeping bitcoin decentralized because if only a few people know what's going on um then in effect it becomes centralized because they're the ones that decide everything and they could do a hard fork or whatever um and you know it's because Bitcoin is software, uh, it's very tightly integrated with the mon monetary policy and making sure that, for example, the monetary policy doesn't change, uh, that the one that Satoshi set out from the very beginning is continue to, uh, continues to be on the network. Uh, that's, that's a crucial part. And understanding things like what the difference between a soft fork and a hard fork is, um, what the benefits are and so on, th those are also uh, very important for users to understand too. So they know what they're ultimately running uh, when they're running their own node. And um, if you're running your own node, you're validating everything, but you need to know what you're actually validating and how you're validating it. Uh, uh, you know, one, one of the most important, obviously, is the 21 million limit and making sure that that isn't violated in any way, shape, or form. But there's a lot of other network rules too that you want to make sure aren't violated. Uh, and you, you have to kind of understand them to know that they're not being violated. Or if you don't care about a particular rule, um, say somebody, a very small minority tries to soft work or something like that, you might not want to run that software. And knowing why and what, what's going on, that, that's, I think, uh, a big part of what keeps Bitcoin decentralized. Yeah. And uh, you've also you run uh, the Programming Bitcoin uh, workshops where uh, you have in-person workshops where you teach people how to uh, code in uh, Bitcoin. And I guess, of course, the uh, other uh, more selfish, perhaps, uh, motivation for programming is that you could get a job in Bitcoin. And uh, 
make the case to our listeners who haven't considered this. Why should they quit their uh, fiat jobs and learn to code and get in on Bitcoin? And why um, it's surprisingly, uh, make the case for why it is actually much better than most fiat careers. Yeah. Uh, so the nice thing about a lot of Bitcoin companies is that they're in Bitcoin. So, of course, they're growing very quickly, um, especially during bull runs like we had from January to April or something like that. Um, you, you, you get a lot of enthusiasm, you get a lot of investment, you get paid very well. Um, and I, 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 I've taught over 500 developers and many, many of them work for some of the largest Bitcoin companies in the world. Some of them have started it. Some of them are CTOs now. Um, some of them are core developers. Um, I would say that uh, if you own Bitcoin, the case I would make is that it, you know, by contributing to it, by understanding it, by being able to write software that uses it, um, you're growing the Bitcoin ecosystem and it's very good for your investment. So it might be rational enough to do if you have enough Bitcoin. Um, the other uh, case I would make is that if you are sort of like in a fiat job um, and, you know, you're kind of tired of the rent-seeking political nature of a lot of these corporations, um, I mean, you, you do get some politics and some Bitcoin companies, I'm sure, uh, but it, it's certainly a lot better just because of almost like the presence of Bitcoin is like sort of like a sanctifying thing for the company itself. Like there, there's a, 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 you know, the values that Bitcoin represents, which is liberty and freedom and self-sovereignty, uh, tend to permeate uh, companies that have Bitcoin in them, although all coins bring that right back down. So, you know, try to go for like Bitcoin only companies. Uh, but I, I would say it's it's definitely refreshing to be at a company that does value those things. And if you have those values, I, w- I would say that would be the other case I would make. Yeah, and I'll uh, I'll also add. I mean, my my uh, my perspective on this is that if you're working in a Bitcoin company, um, the culture is very different because of the absence of fiat. When you're working in fiat-based companies, and I think you know the last year made this so clearly obvious all over the world, where you are not sovereign over your company. You think you own the company, you think you own the capital, but you know. When push comes to shove, government says shut down and uh, make everybody in your company put a diaper on their face uh, if they want to come into the office and uh, keep everybody six feet apart. You know, it doesn't matter what you think. This is what you need to do. And it's uh, it's quite amazing to see how this uh, worked out over the last year. And of course, you know, um, you know, Bitcoin companies had to do things like that as well. You're, you're not above the law if you're a Bitcoin company. But I think, uh, I guess that might be a bit of a bad example. But in general, what happens is that because uh, fiat financing is the lifeblood of fiat companies, where they're continuously needing to roll over debt and continuously needing access to uh, uh, good lenders, there's very little room for... Uh, free thought, free speech, and bucking the trend of what the finance people want from you and what the bureaucrats want and what the regulators want. And Bitcoin kind of flips that around because um, the uh, value comes from the money itself. So you don't need a constant stream of money to be coming to you from a financial institution. The money you have appreciates, the money you have has its own value. That's kind of the whole point of money. 
that it's uh, different from credit and that credit is uh, is contingent on other people performing uh, certain obligations in order for your assets to continue to have value, whereas money has its own value in um, in it, regardless of what other people do from it, uh, regardless of what other people do. You know, if you get paid in gold or in Bitcoin, you get paid, you get the gold or Bitcoin in your pocket, and then that's it. It works as a gold coin or as a Bitcoin coin without anybody needing to continue to perform uh, liabilities. And I think this kind of uh, finality of settlement and the fact that the money is a present good just um, gives everything uh, much more honesty and makes uh, makes makes people much more likely to um, be honest and uh, work hard and be productive and not waste their time on um, stupid and consequential bullshit, which you see a lot of in uh, fiat companies. The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with an ice-colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. Yeah, and and that's the thing. Like uh, This past year, it's been sort of like a contest between people to see who can be the best rule follower. Um, and this is what we've realized, is that the fiatization of the economy has ultimately made nearly everybody, uh, you know, in the economy, just like very strict rule followers, because as you said, if you're taking on debt, um, you have to follow the rules. If you don't follow the rules, uh, that line of credit, that line of debt, that central controller that approves or disapproves of, uh, you know, whatever money is flowing your way um, can shut it off at any time. So you're very much dependent on that central controller instead of Bitcoin where you, you're actually in control and you can, you can do whatever you want with it. So you don't have that dependency. Um, and that, the, those are some very different values and it does sort of uh, encourage a lot better behavior, a lot more hard work and so on. A, a lot of which we point out in the book, thank God for Bitcoin. Yeah. And I think, you know, in um, general programming is uh, essentially like a superpower. And, um, you know, um, machines and engines uh, gave us superpowers because you click a button and then the machine 
will do a hundred men's work for you in an hour and moving stuff or pumping stuff or, uh, um, you know, all of those wonderful things. And yet programming is an even higher level of leverage because you write a few lines of code and then you've programmed a million machines to do a um, hundred million men's work for uh, many, many, many hours. So the amount of leverage that you can uh, uh, exact on uh, economic processes with uh, w- with programming is enormous, and so I, I know many cases of people who you know had uh, normal careers and uh, even successful careers in cases, and even in their uh, in their twenties or thirties or forties, they just quit, learn to program, and um, you know it's 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 not easy, but within a few months or a couple of years you're uh, achieving much higher productivity in your work because you're being able to leverage uh, much more important, much more powerful tools at the jobs that you're doing. And uh, because uh, because fiat work involves a lot of uh, rituals and uh, wasteful stuff and programming in Bitcoin can be different in that regard. So it's um, it's something that I really encourage people to look into. Um, uh, It's... uh, You'll be surprised at what you can achieve with six months of uh, dedicated, uh, focused learning of programming Bitcoin. You could uh, you could achieve a lot uh, after six months. You could uh, get a job and uh, do very well. Would you agree? Yeah, uh, and I have a really good example. Uh, there was a guy that was a cop in New Zealand, and he decided he wanted to become a programmer. Um, he learned programming, then took my course, and then started working for an exchange soon after. And I think the whole process took him roughly about six months, like you said. And he's uh, he's now like working for a different company. I think he found one that pays better and is more aligned with his values and so on. Uh, but yeah, I, th- those are the success stories, and there definitely are out there. But I'm, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's not easy, and it does require a lot of hard work. Um, uh, just like anything in life where you actually have to do stuff. Uh, I, I know fiat people like to make it sound like it's all it's going to be easy and you're not going to have to do much, which in uh, the cases of a lot of rent-seeking jobs, it really is like that. Um, but if you're actually contributing to civilization, you're going to have to work hard and use your talents to the maximum, uh, to their maximum potential. Yeah. And I guess, you know, the point is you're going to suffer one way or the other, either you work hard and you suffer upfront and then you reap the rewards or you don't work hard and then you suffer gradually, um, in a way that compounds into the future as you reap the rewards of not working hard initially. So pick your poison. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I would go with the low time preference option. Absolutely, which brings us nicely to the topic of the other book, Thank God for Bitcoin. So, um, you know, most people wouldn't really associate a piece of software with God. Um, and they wouldn't really see that, you know, there's something religious uh, about it or that there are religious connotations to this. And yet you are part of, or I think you formed a group called Bitcoin and Bible Group, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So what is the inspiration behind that? And what is the connection between Bitcoin and um, the Bible and God? Where do you see that connection come from? Yeah, the the real connection point for me is morals and ethics, because that that's really uh, what what the book is about and why uh, the argument that uh, that we make. Uh, but basically, when, when you think about money, uh, there it, it's hard to 
understand it without having some sort of moral framework to go with it. Um, so we know, for example, that fiat money is extremely corrupt. They're, they're expanding at insane rates. There's a Cantillon effect that there's a, a, a lot of ways in which uh, debt leverage can be abused for the benefit of those in power or those that are favored instead of everybody else. Um, and that that's the cause of a lot of societal strife. Um, you know, there's, uh, you know, stealth taxation through inflation and things like that. Um, and other people have made this case before. And that 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 was what um, what we were studying uh, as sort of like the inspiration for this book. Uh, we were studying two books, The Ethics of Money Production by Guido von Halsman and Honest Money by Gary North. And they're both Austrian economists that come uh, from a Christian background. I, I believe Guido von Halsman is Catholic and um, Gary North is uh, Christian. He's, uh, you know, or Protestant. He's a... Uh, He's written a lot of homeschooling books for um, uh, for people in the U.S. and was an economic advisor to Ron Paul. So they they both have uh, sort of like the right idea in the sense that they're they're showing sort of the unethical nature of the central bank fiat system. But in order to talk about whether or not something is unethical or ethical, you you really have to have a moral framework, and it's really hard to have a moral framework without God in it. Um, you can, and Papa and Rothbard have both written, uh, you know, their books on how to come up with sort of like an ethics of liberty. Um, but you know, I, I, even they recognize that there's sort of like a bootstrapping that you need to do in order to have some moral premises by which you can judge the current, uh, you know, system. Uh, and, you know, like they, they go kind of around it by arguing that you own yourself. Therefore, uh, you know, even if you're speaking, you're sort of acknowledging that you have property over your own body and they sort of like build off of that, which I think is a little bit of a cheat. Um, if you if you are if you do have sort of like morality based on God, it's it's a lot easier to argue. And, and that's what this uh, book was meant to be. It, it, it's meant to be uh, an argument for people that already have these morals and say, okay, you know what? The current system that uh, that you're in, that uh, you're kind of like a fish swimming in water, so you don't really recognize how filthy the water is. Um, you know, that's what we point out for the first seven chapters. And we don't really talk about Bitcoin until the last two and saying, hey, you know what? Like Bitcoin fixes a lot of these moral problems with fiat money uh, because it is sound money and because it is unconfiscatable and because it is digital, um, it's a lot more convenient and, you know, it's a lot harder to seize and all that stuff. So um, that's ultimately the uh, the connection that I've made between, uh, you know, God and Bitcoin, essentially. Yeah. And so... Um you argue that um, deficit spending and uh, inflation are theft from the community and basically that they're immoral. Um, obviously, I'm not going to pretend you need to convince me. <laughs> I'm so, <laughs> but I'm nonetheless going to ask you to make the case. Uh, you know, why, wh- what, is, what is the Christian case against inflation and against fiat money? Yeah, so I, I think Nicolas Oresme, who's a 14th century French bishop, um, who also like did a lot of other things. I, I, I discovered that he's uh, 
he's the one that discovered that uh, the harmonic series is divergent from mathematics, and that's like one one of the fundamental things you learn as a math major if you if you're into that sort of thing. But he he made the argument in um, De Moneta about um, how money that is diluted by a prince, uh, essentially, if uh, if a prince takes a one ounce silver coin and dilutes it uh, by some amount uh, that he is essentially stealing from the community. What If he wants to do that, he needs the consent of the entire community in order to do so. Clearly, he's not getting that uh, by diluting it because they're doing it oftentimes secretly and without anyone knowing, um, which is reminiscent of the Fed today. Um, that in itself is unjust because you are diluting what everyone else is having. It, it, it's theft in a very different form because it changes the supply of something instead of, uh, you know, actually taking directly from somebody. Um, and it, it's, it, I, I, and that argument I think uh, holds pretty clearly because uh, it, if I promise you that, uh, you know, this, this has one ounce of uh, silver and it only has like half an ounce. That's clearly lying. And it's, you know, theft because, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm defrauding you uh, of money. Um, it, it's interesting, though, with fiat money, because it, it, ever since 1971, it's become like pure fiat money. And this is what Guido von Holzmann calls like reverse transubstantiation, where it used to be backed by gold. And then all of a sudden it's like kind of free floating and like worth nothing. Um, that there, there's an argument to be made there too, because in a sense, it's uh, it, it becomes something that does the money doesn't mean anything, and because it has no base, by expanding, it, it's uh, essentially completely controlled by the central bank, and they can steal with impunity instead of at least having some form of reality in the form of a coin. It, it, now it's, uh, it's just numbers in a database that can be manipulated at will. And it's like that much easier instead of having to melt and dilute and, um, you know, re recoin things and things like that. So, um, you know, ultimately it's, it's that because it changes the supply uh, and you don't have the purchasing power that you thought you had. It's not a, it's not the same portion. It'd be the same thing as if, uh, you know, I, um, uh, you know, I bought like 10% of your business and then you just issued more shares. It's it, like without my consent, that, that would be, um, that would uh, be fraud. And the same thing is true with money. Yeah. And, um, you also talk a lot about time preference in your book. And, um, this is also something that I discuss in the Bitcoin standard and it's something that's uh, really fascinating to me. So, uh, give us the, um, the, the Christian perspective on, um, time preference, why it resonates with you as a Christian and how Bitcoin fixes this. Well, how, how fiat ruins it first, obviously, and then how Bitcoin fixes it. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I, you know, high time preference, low time preference, those are the words that we use in Bitcoin. Um, I, but, you know, they, they've been part of the Christian tradition for a long time. It's one of the four cardinal virtues. Prudence is what we would call it. It's sort of like planning for the future. And, you know, another translation of that, uh, that concept is wisdom. Right? It's, it's being wise about things and not just sort of doing things now or out of impulse or something like that. Um, and... That, that is one of the virtues uh, classically in Christian tradition, along with the three um, 
three spiritual virtues, uh, charity, uh, faith, and hope. Um, and that, that's, a, that, that's a part of uh, what uh, develops character. Um, and what fiat money has done, particularly through debt, is bring consumption forward. And th- this is one of the most uh, corrupting things to character that I think can happen because, you know, I mean, it, uh, you know, you have kids, I have kids. Um, if I say, okay, all right, I, you can have this uh, toy right now and uh, you're going to owe me, you know, washing dishes for the next week, that's just kind of going to make them resentful, right? It doesn't develop character at all because you're, you're essentially – um, making, uh, you know, indulging them in their impulse um, and then like enslaving them for a while. Um, whereas if they saved up, if you said, okay, well, I'll pay you 25 cents every time you wash dishes and after you save up, you can go get that toy. Um, that's a lot better for your character. It, it teaches you about working hard and it's a different mentality. Instead of being enslaved, it's you are working for it and you have control, you have uh, sovereignty over your work almost uh, a- as a result. Um, the sad reality of fiat money is that it's brought consumption forward, not just for governments, but for everybody. It's uh, companies, they just get whatever they want now and just uh, you know finance it. And then they're enslaved or they have to keep paying it off uh, on sort of like a continual rolling basis. And bankruptcy is when they can't pay it back. Um, you know, people are doing that with credit cards, mortgages. Everything is sort of like you get what you want now, but you have to be enslaved for, you know, however long the term of the loan is. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a very different mentality. There's a verse in Proverbs that says, uh, the debtor is servant to the lender. And, uh, you know, that, that's true. You, you have some obligation to the lender um, and in many ways, that, that can be seen as sort of like a monetary uh, master-slave relationship. Uh, that's not healthy. We're, we're meant to be free. We're meant to be, um, you know, people that are, you know, doing something other than the will of the bank or whoever is lending the money to you. Um, and, you know, the, sadly, everything in this economy uh, works that way. I, I see, like, funding from VCs or whatever as... Forms of debt, uh, just, you know, different forms. Uh, obviously, um, you know, they say it's equity, but really they, they kind of run the show and they, they tell you what to do. So um, in that way, I, I, I think it's, uh, it's not good for character. It's not good for development. It's not good for um, anybody, really. And ultimately, uh, fiat money is decivilizing, whereas, um, you know, because of that, uh, you know, consume first, pay it off later mentality, whereas, you know, save first and then build, uh, you know, so that you can build something uh, that that actually builds up civilization. And it's good not just for civilization itself, which is obviously getting built, uh, but for the people in it, because it teaches them work, work ethic and discipline. And it just, uh, you know, it, it's not degenerate, to, to be frank. Yeah. So, what is what is uh, in in your view? What is the Christian perspective on debt? So, it's it's um, it, it's not explicitly forbidden for people to take on debt as Christians, but it's also not uh, encouraged. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about how you think of debt from a Christian perspective? 
Yeah, so a big controversy through most of Christianity has been the topic of usury, which is, you know, how much interest is too much on debt? Um, unfortunately, fiat money like puts a wrench into all of those calculations because, um, you know, none, none of that takes inflation into account, which obviously changes what the definition of usury could be. Um, you know, and at various points, uh, you know, different people have said, okay, th this percentage is too much, this percentage is too little, and so on. But all that goes out the window if, say, you're living in Venezuela. You would take out loans for at almost any interest rate because it's inflating so fast. So, like, later on, you could pay it back so cheap. Um, I would say that, like... Uh, Debt, uh, as a lender, it, uh, what a Christian would say is it is licit to uh, or it is legal or it is approved by God to lend out to people as long as you're not trying to enslave them. Right. Um, and this is, uh, you know, that that does happen. And, you know, there, there to this day, there are people in India, for example, um, who are lent some small amount of money because they're really hungry and about to die. And uh, and. You know, to pay it off, they have to work on a farm, but then they have costs on the farm that they have to pay and they can't outrun that debt. And that, that's sort of like a form of monetary slavery that's fairly extreme, but that's, that would be something that would be illicit under, um, uh, under Christian morals. Um, what would be illicit or would be, you know, like lending out, um, not out of, not ex nihilo, like, uh, like, you know, fiat loans are, right? Like uh, if if you're getting loaned uh, a mortgage, that money does not come from somebody's savings. It is printed on your behalf. So that I think is illicit. Uh, and I've, I, I've had to come to that conclusion after writing this book and I speak as somebody that has a mortgage. So I'm in sin at the moment, uh, but try to correct that. Uh, but, you know, there, there is something wrong about, um, uh, you know, taking loans ex nihilo, because you are essentially diluting everybody else by a small amount, obviously, but still diluting everyone else and in essence, stealing from them. Um, so that that would be wrong always. Uh, but, you know, debt that, um, you know, somebody lends you that isn't meant to enslave you, uh, that that isn't trying to, uh, you know, screw you over by, uh, you know, putting you into sort of like a perpetual debt where you're con continuously slave enslaved. And, uh, you know, cost them something, right? It has opportunity costs where uh, they won't be able to allocate that capital somewhere else, but they're allocating it to you. I think that could be listed um, and that, that, that could be uh, fine. Um, the interest rate, like, I, I don't know how much is too much, but like, I, I think the metric there is whether or not you're being enslaved for the betterment of the person that's lending it to you. Yeah, I, I I don't know if you and I have discussed this, but we've uh, discussed it in the seminar with um, in the seminar with Harris Erfan on uh, um, Islamic uh, money on Bitcoin as Islamic money, and I tend to fall on the view that um, anything above zero is too much, um, and I think. I, this is this might be one of my crazy ideas, um, but I, I've, it's one of these ideas that just doesn't go away. I keep thinking about it, and it's uh, it keeps popping up. My intuition is that if we did have a money that was as good as Bitcoin, that was the only money, 
in an economy and we didn't have inflationary monies and we didn't have monopolies on banking because of the limitations of, um, and as I, you know, as I discuss in my two books, the, um, you know, in the Bitcoin standard, the focus is on saleability across time. And in the fiat standard, the focus is on saleability across space. And uh, gold has great saleability across time, but terrible saleability across space. And fiat is the opposite. It doesn't hold its value across time, but it's decent for moving value around across space. Well, Bitcoin beats them both on both counts, which is, um, in my mind, is why it's essentially the perfect money. Uh, whereas the other two are kind of the analog uh, imperfect versions that we had to made up, make up with. You know, it's, it's like the abacus was the uh, primitive computer that we had. If we, you, you can't, uh, you can't run complex programs on your abacus. But if it was much better, it would be a computer and you would. And so my my inclination is to think that the ability of lenders to charge interest is a function of uh, either the ability of a central banker to uh, print money and provide them with money or a function of their spatial monopoly, wherein everybody in a certain town or a certain country has to deal with one specific institution uh, that they have to go through which effectively allows that institution to make money, to turn its own credit into money. And so that puts it in a position where it can issue debt without um, having full opportunity cost for it. You know, they, they can make more liabilities than they have asset on hand because everybody has to use them. Everybody needs to settle their trade through them. And there's no alternative. You know, there's no other central bank that you could go to. Um, and I think, you know, if you had a free market in central banking, even without Bitcoin, if you just had a free market with uh, gold uh, and, and fiat currencies, I think you'd end up with the market uh, overwhelmingly choosing the bankers that um, run full reserve banking on the hardest monetary asset. But when you have a monopoly, then everything is disfigured. And I think uh, historically, you know, gold never lent itself very well to um, busting monopolies because it's centralizing. Uh, you're always centralizing the um, gold reserves because moving gold around is expensive and insecure. You're always centralizing the gold reserves. And as a result, you're giving the people who have these reserves the ability to more or less inflate the money supply and therefore be able to lend at an interest. But I think um, I don't see how you could lend at an interest in a perfectly hard money economy. I don't see how, you know, you have Bitcoin and you want to give it to somebody. I don't see how you would be able to get away with giving it to them for a fixed interest rate because um, you would want to take on uh, it, it makes more sense for both of you to just have an equity deal where you share with them on the upside and the downside. And the asymmetry of uh, giving somebody debt where they're liable for everything on the downside, you know, if they lose, they still have to pay you. But if they uh, make a profit, you know, they only pay you a specific, uh, they only pay you a specific maximum. I think that's a luxury that's only afforded through um, inflation. And I tend to think we wouldn't get this in a Bitcoin standard, but I could be wrong. Mm. Yeah, it, it would be interesting to see because, um, you know, what, what are we talking about here? Is it a back loan or an unbacked loan? Because if it's backed by something, then I could, I could see a zero or a very small interest rate making sense because 
you have the value of whatever it is backed by. So if it's backed by, say, your house or something, you can always sell the house. And, you know, depending on, you know, the fluctuations of the value of the house, um, you know, the, the loan, you know, needn't make that much because uh, you always sort of have that backup. Uh, but an unbacked loan, um, yeah, I'm not even sure that's a thing. Uh, it's called equity. It'll be equity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it, it would it would have to be something equity based, and ultimately, what I think what you're doing with the, your scheme is uh, basically make paying back debt a lot more like saving, because uh, you know you're you're having to work to um, to get something, and it, uh, it, instead of sort of being enslaved per se, you're you're sort of uh, you know, you're, you're doing things together. You're, you, you have, um, you know, they, they have sort of like the same upside and downside. So yeah, it, yeah. I, I think equity may, maybe ultimately how it goes or I don't know. Um, like savings, I think becomes a lot more attractive anyway, just because, you know, uh, you can, like if you're saving in Bitcoin, you probably save up to, you know, start a business in a few years right now. Uh, Whereas if you're saving in fiat, you're, it's, you might not ever get there because, uh, you know, you, you have to have one inflation. Um, that, that may be a large part of sort of, uh, you know, making debt unattractive enough that it gets to 0% or something to that effect. Yeah, and also the, the, the fact that you are rewarded for saving means that we're likely to get a lot of saving. And that just means a lot of capital lying around. So your ability to charge an interest to lend out your capital continues to decline because a lot of other people have capital. So the metric by which you can get uh, somebody to give you capital is not the interest that you pay. It's your credit worthiness. It's your trustworthiness. It's, it's if people think that you are good for the money. So I believe, you know, people would still lend each other money um, you know, and, uh, somebody's in trouble, somebody needs surgery, somebody needs it. But think about a world in which, you know, imagine if the last 100 years we didn't have easy money where everybody was getting into debt and instead we had 100 years of capital accumulation where everybody was accumulating their savings and the savings were growing in value at 2 3%. It's really, I mean, this kind of stuff sounds outlandish and it's like Bitcoiners uh, being delusional, but really I don't see how we wouldn't be living in a world today where the majority of people would have the equivalent of millions of dollars of savings in cash today, you know? Um, and it would probably be hundreds of dollars in that world. You know, the dollar with the, you know, the price of a house would probably be $5 in that kind of world or $50. Imagine, you know, 100 years of the dollar rising in value instead of dropping in value, do the compounding the other way around. Um, instead of losing two to ten percent per year, it's gaining two to three, four percent per year. We'd probably be looking at a world in which a house is worth a hundred dollars and everybody has a thousand dollars of savings at least, um, perhaps you know, or maybe a little less. But I think you know we'd have a world in which people would have an enormous amount of savings, and that would just be a good thing. You know, everybody's got savings that they always can fall back on, and so. Uh, people are rich, people are secure, and people have money. And um, if somebody needs money and you know that they're uh, credit worthy, you know that they're uh, trusted, you know that they have a good reason for why they need it, uh, you don't need to charge them an interest. 
particularly because they would find a lot of other people who have a lot of capital lying around. And also, if you think about it, in that kind of world, um, you know, the uh, keeping your money on hand carries a cost. There's a cost to storing your money, no matter how small it is. And keeping your money on hand involves a risk. If you're the one holding your money and you lose it, it's gone. So giving it to somebody else alleviates those two costs, removes those two costs. You don't have to worry about storing it and you don't have to be responsible for it getting stolen. If it gets stolen from him, he's the one who's still going to be liable for it for you. So there is a benefit that emerges without having to charge an interest, which is um, just the nature of lending. And I suspect we might be moving to a world uh, like that, but uh, who knows? Yeah, the, the hard thing in that sort of scenario is that the character of society would need to change quite a bit. Um, you would have to have a lot of people that are proven, that are loan time preference, that are uh, you know, not looking to get the latest of everything and you know um you know fomo or yolo into things uh and that that's a very different mentality than we have now but then again if we had a hundred years of two to three like if we stayed on the gold standard for example uh, we we might have a situation where you know houses are worth very uh you know can be done with very few dollars right uh, because yeah, the units don't expand, they're fully back. Um, and people might have a lot more savings than they might be a lot more prudent and they might be, you know, like not so materialistic or um, concerned about, uh, you know, I, I don't know, uh, doing whatever right now uh, and instead sort of planning for a legacy and uh, trying to set up their kids and their grandkids for the future. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, um, you know, the, as I was writing the fiat standard, I focused on several of these aspects of uh, the implications of uh, easy money and just how it leads to degradation of people's time preference to focus on the present. Um, you, th- you see it in economic decision making, you see it in savings, you see it in family. And to just imagine, you know, what would have happened to this world if we hadn't had a 100 years of that and we'd continue to have another 100 years of the gold standard, which is what was going on between for, for the previous 100 years before that. It's absolutely amazing. I think we'd have uh, a very, very different world. I think, um, I think modern developed world standards of living would be easily attainable for seven, eight billion people in the world. I think, uh, you know, it's absolutely insane when you think about it, you know, what you need today in order to live a modern life. Think about sanitation, plumbing, a modern house and electricity and running water. Um, Today, you know, to have a house that has all of those things costs at least tens of thousands of dollars. But imagine if the value of money was appreciating throughout all that time and people could save. And imagine if all of the inflation and hyperinflations of this century didn't happen. Think about how much more affordable all of these things would be. Like it's 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 astounding to me that you know we've had the we've had running hot and cold water for so long, we've had electricity for so long, and there are still parts of the world that can't afford to get it. And that makes no sense in except when you understand the impact of fiat money and the impact of government interventions because it's um 
it's uh, it's something that increases people's productivity massively. So no matter how rich or how poor you are, you're going to be much better off if you have electricity, if you have a pump, if you have heating, if you have a house that protects you from the rain. It's just a much more productive way to live. And so you'll be able to produce much more. So if it raises your productivity, you should be able to pay for it. And these things just continue to get cheaper, like these essentials that we need continue to get cheaper year after year in re- in real terms. Um, I think the world would be a very different place, would be far richer. And yeah, I think uh, the implications on people's morality as well would be very different. We'd live in a world where people took, uh, where people expected abundance around them. And uh, it wouldn't be a world in which everybody is constantly feeling robbed and everybody's constantly trying to take it out on everybody else because they think everybody else is out to get them. And in a sense, in a fiat world, it is. You know, everybody out there is trying to print more money so that they can devalue the money that you have, which isn't a problem in a gold or Bitcoin standard. Yeah, and uh, that's the thing that really gets me mad, right? <laughs> is, is thinking about the productivity that we should have and where, where did all of that go? Well, they, they went to red seekers, they went to governments, they went to wars, they went to you know, uh, stupid things like uh, enforcing diapers on your face or whatever. Um, you know, that's where all of that productivity went, where human flourishing could have happened with people putting that effort into creating businesses, goods and services that the market would want. Um, you know, that could have all happened. And, we, uh, and I actually think it would be like way better than what you, what even your optimistic scenario would have been, where seven to eight billion people have the quality of life that Western people enjoy. I think we would have planes that are, you know, like traveling from LA to uh, LA to New York in like one hour, and you know, space travel to Mars and and all sorts of stuff like that. But it's because of uh, you know, sort of like this friction that's introduced into the economy through uh, money printing, through, you know, government programs that really don't do anything. It's it's all this like inefficiency that's introduced because of this black hole of uh, monetary intervention that's available that uh, that uh, that governments end up spending and rent seekers, uh, you know, expend so much time and energy into getting um, that, that could otherwise be used so much better. Like one, one of the things that I point out to people is, you know, think about like the last 50 years, where have the best and the brightest people, right? Like the people that graduate from MIT or Harvard, Stanford or whatever, where, what, what industry have they been going to? They've been going into investment banking. It's not because they have a passion for investment banking. It's because that's where they can get the most leverage in a fiat system. That's where you can make the most money very quickly without That's where you can borrow much. the most. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They, they, they can leverage the hell out of the monetary system. Um, it, you know, those are the people that in 1870 would have been, you know, building, you know, uh, new infrastructure or inventing new ways of doing, uh, you know, transport or something like that. They, they, they're, these are entrepreneurs, uh, potential entrepreneurs that have all been sucked in by, uh, you know, essentially a fiat morality. And it's, it's really sad because we've been held back essentially by this great evil of fiat, uh, central banking. Absolutely. I think uh, I also discussed this in my fiat chapter. You know, uh, there was a, there was, uh, in my fiat energy chapter, 
annual consumption of energy worldwide was growing at around 2% per year per capita for since the beginning of the industrial revolution at the beginning of the 19th century up until the 1970s now what the f <laughs> happened in the 1970s is a very good question i urge you to check out uh, wtf happened 1914 sorry 1917 1971 uh, wtf happened 1971.com it's a it's a website that compiles a whole bunch of graphs of things that started changing in the 1970s and um, yeah, this is one of them. Uh, we were growing in our consumption of energy, which is, I think, a very good thing. Energy is how we have been able to conquer diseases and live safely and uh, protect ourselves from nature. And then that growth stopped in the 1970s. And you also see it with aviation. In the 1960s, we, invent, we had the Concorde and it was operational in the 1970s. But then no other supersonic fly, uh, airlines were built. And then in 2000, it was taken off the air. And it's astonishing. Um, people don't like to think of technological regression, but this is clearly technological regression. My grandfather flew in a Concorde. Um, I didn't. And uh, my kids are going to grow up hearing about an ancient civilization where their great-grandfather could cross the Atlantic in three hours while they're... Uh, sitting in a in in, in a subsonic uh, fly. Well, it, you know who knows. By the time uh, they're grown up, we might not even have aviation the way things are going. We had all of aviation shut down last year, so who knows? You know, maybe they, they'll be taking kayaks across the Atlantic by then. <laughs> well, here's a scary thought. What if uh, what if in 1969, when Neil Armstrong uh, landed on the moon, that was sort of like the peak of civilization, and we've been in decline since then? I mean, I think there's an argument to be made that if Bitcoin didn't come along, that that's exactly where we would be. Uh, a declining civilization never admits to their decline or never thinks of themselves in decline. But I mean, honestly, what have we done since then? Like, has has there been anything really? Um, I, I don't, I don't know. It's interesting that all of the um, major innovations that have happened since then have happened in the virtual world. Because that's the one world where you can make a couple of moves without the government taxing you and regulating you um, out of existence with every step. You know, it's the internet has just moved way faster than bureaucrats can catch up with. So, you know, online communities develop and websites develop and these things continue to grow way before anybody could um, put a hand on them. You know, I remember when they were talking about regulating MySpace and then MySpace was out of uh, business and um, it, it just continues to evolve very, very quickly. So um, interestingly enough, you know, you think about it, uh, other than that, in terms of physical stuff, yeah, our airplanes today are crappier than airplanes in the 1960s, objectively. By uh, by, and, and I've written a paper on this, which I also mentioned in in, in the Fiat Standard. Uh, it uh, I in for that paper, I went through the ten most popular routes in the U.S. Uh, today, or a few years ago, and then I looked at how long they take on average. So the ten most popular airline uh, routes. And then I looked at those same routes in 1960s and 1970s. And in fact, it was faster in the 1960s and 70s. You could go from uh, New York to Chicago or New York to San Francisco or LA to San Francisco. All of these major routes, uh, they were 
uh, something like 10, 20, 30% faster back then uh, than they are right now. And it's astonishing when you think about it. And th- that's not even counting the supersonic flight, you know, just looking at subsonic flights. And then you look at the uh, SR-71, the fastest airplane that has ever been invented, the last time it flew was in 1991. That was 20 years ago. It was built in the 1960s and 70s, and it broke the speed record in 1976. And that's it. That record has stood since 1976. It's amazing. I I, I have a chart in that uh, in that chapter in the Fiat Standard where it shows the uh, aviation speed record. I, I got the data from the. Uh, International Federation for International Aviation, FIA, or something like that. And it shows, you know, from the Wright brothers all the way up to the Concorde and the SR-71, it's just constantly growing and improving. There's a little bit of a, there's a little bit of a uh, uh, resistance around the speed of light where it takes us a few years to cross that barrier. But then we You might, mean the speed of sound? The speed yeah. of sound, I'm sorry. It takes us a few years to cross that barrier, but then they cross that barrier and then we just continue marching on until the 1970s happened. And then <laughs> it's, it's, it's like we took a civilizational arrow to the knee and our airplanes just can't fly anymore any fa- as fast as they could. And, we, so, and so there's the uh, speed record that has stood since then. And there's also the um, altitude record. Uh, there's still not been an airplane that can fly higher than the SR-71. And all the modern airplanes that they make right now can't challenge it. It's amazing. Mm. Yeah, I, Jeffrey Tucker has this great article on uh, something a little more mundane, dishwashers, and how in the 60s, it, uh, a cycle took like 45 minutes. Uh, but because of all the regulations on now, like dishwashers take like three, four hours and they don't clean as good. So it's like we, we've regressed there too, uh, because in a sense, um, like there's a lot of friction involved with regulation and things like that, which ultimately make... Uh, make things worse. Yeah, I think um, I think you could probably make a case that 1914 was the pinnacle, and then uh, 1914 was like the pinnacle of human civilization, and then it all started to decline. However, technology continued to advance from 1914 onward because you know we just had just invented all these incredibly powerful, amazing things airplanes and engines and uh, all that stuff. And so just simply spreading that all over the world and slowly tweaking it and improving it caused the most significant um, improvement in living standards in human history throughout the 20th century. But then that seems to have petered out by the 1970s. Um, It's just, it it looks like that was the end of the um, industrial um, and technological, well, not end, but it is... um, it's perhaps the pinnacle or the peak was in the 1970s. But since then, we've kind of been living off of the leftovers. I, I get the feeling, honestly, sometimes like it's it's like a bunch of kids who live in a giant mansion and then the parents die or the parents leave. And then the kids are in charge of the mansion. And, you know, for the first few weeks, they can get by because they remember what the parents used to do and they just, you know, do the same things that they used to do, turn on the lights and uh, milk the cows or um, whatever it is, you know, secure food from the supermarket. Um, And they can keep the mansion running for a few months. But then 
uh, you know, um, when the serious problems begin to show up, these kids have no idea how to fix the plumbing. They have no idea how to um, do all of the complicated things that require that are required to keep the mansion running. And it's just you, you, you. It's almost like we're, uh, you know, it's 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 an incredibly powerful and amazing mansion with insanely advanced technological cap- capabilities that's being used as a woodshed essentially by a bunch of kids because that's as good as they can do. They can't use all the extremely sophisticated technology anymore. They're just using it as a roof and walls, basically. They're staying under the roof and the walls and everything else is falling apart. And you look at places like California and New York and Texas having um, power outages and not just, you know, the, the issue is not just that they have the outages. The issue is what's astonishing for me is how it's completely normalized. Like people aren't out rioting in the streets about the fact that their power companies are just simply telling them, hey, you know, um, you should stay, you you should turn down the AC today and you shouldn't charge your electric car today and you should do this and you should do that. It's astonishing because, you know, these places had had 24 hour electricity many decades ago and now it's no longer possible anymore because people are insane. People are getting into all these crazy fiat cults. Yeah, they're they're denying nuclear energy in particular, and that that that's a big one. Uh, but to further your analogy, it's not just that the kids don't know how; it's that they don't want to. It's they they think, ah, oh, this is good enough. They don't have the character to want to maintain the house to learn about all of the sophisticated things that a house can do. Instead, they're happy just sort of like living as a woodshed. Uh, and that that's sort of like the attitude of a lot of people in society today. Oh, we don't, we, we don't want to do anything further. We just want to, you know, save the planet or whatever. Like they, they have um, almost a, uh, I don't know, like kind of a, a, a moral laziness about them. They, they, they don't want to think through all of the, um, the, consequences. Uh, and, you know, like 1914 and 1971 are also sort of significant from a moral sense. Uh, you know, 1914, like around then was, uh, you know, Freud's whole thing, um, sort of like the sexualization of anything uh, that that's sort of mindful. Uh, 1970s, you know, that's right after the sexual revolution and like uh, the moral decline of the country in many ways. Uh, I think all of these things are correlated. Uh, I don't know if it's all Fiat's fault, but I would probably place a significant amount of blame on Fiat money just because of the way they, um, because of the way that it it encourages short time preference, which, or, or a very high time preference, which is ultimately what, uh, you know, what, you know, like just having, uh, you know, Freudian uh, sexual gratification and, you know, the sexual revolution, which is sort of like the consummation of that was, um, you know, there's a really interesting um, book uh, by this guy, I can't remember, but he he studied all these cultures and uh, the sexual mores of that civilization versus how long it's like, like the level of technology and, uh, you know, things that they were able to achieve. Uh, it took three generations basically to um, decline completely uh, from 
you know, a level of high civilization to very low civilization where people are just sort of like killing each other. I, I kind of think that's where we're headed. Um, and Bitcoin is sort of like going, having to fight that wave a little bit. Um, well, not just a little bit, a lot. Uh, but, you know, that, that seems to be sort of like the salvation <laughs> of the monetary part, at least, uh, because of its role in, uh, you know, high type preference and uh, re- uh, like reducing high type preference. I think the book you're referring to is by Edward Gibbon. Um, I'm trying to, th- I think I've heard about it. Um, I haven't read yeah, it. There's like a 22 page summary that I read. I, I haven't read the whole thing. It's like 600 pages. And he goes through many different civilizations and categorizes them by like sort of like their the sexual mores around uh, that civilization. Um, and that tends to correspond actually pretty well, I, I suspect, with uh, low time preference behavior versus high time preference behavior. Um, you know, people that want to do whatever they want sexually tend to be very high time preference. Um, and, you know, it's yeah. the low time preference people that build civilization. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, it's um, it's tempting to put everything on fiat money because, you know, you should always blame everything on fiat money. It's, <laughs> it's a winning move at all times. But I think, um, yeah, I think, you know, reading um, this and also reading, um, there's a great book by uh, Sir John Glubb, uh, who was... Um, um, he was a British uh, uh, military man and who was also um, essentially the founder of the Jordanian uh, uh, modern army. And he, he worked with King Abdullah and uh, King Abdullah I and King Hussein. And um, he was actually also a, a, an intellectual and he wrote about the rise and fall of civilizations. And essentially, this seems to be a cycle that uh, has happened um, throughout history. And... Uh, Fiat money or inflation is almost an inextricable part of it. Now, whether it is the cause or if it is a symptom of the deeper moral decay is an interesting question, uh, but I think it's not as interesting as the uh, correlation. Like I think people can sometimes get too hung up on whether something is causal or not, missing the extremely important uh, signal that there is there in just merely the correlation. In other words, it it doesn't really matter if it's the money that's causing the morals to decline or if it's the decline of the morals that is causing the uh, money to uh, get broken. Um, But it's interesting that those things come together. And that's a very valuable and very high quality signal uh, to tell you about, you know, the state of the world, uh, where you are and how things are going and how you expect things. And I think uh, to go back to the analogy of... um, children in the mansion, um, it's, it, it, it almost seems to be an inevitable part of, uh, you know, uh, uh, as the mansion grows, there comes a point where the kids in the mansion uh, lose track between the connection of the work that is needed in order to make the mansion happen and the services that the mansion renders. It just becomes, you know, after enough generations with enough money, that idea of we need to build the mansion is gone because the mansion is there because you're born with a golden spoon in your mouth. And so life becomes about how do we enjoy the mansion? 
And, you know, the work, the hard work is something that the servants do. Um, it's not something that we do. And it's just, we move toward this kind of perspective where it's not about how much, um, uh, how much work we can put in. It's how much we can enjoy. And as a result, you know, initially the, you know, the roof starts leaking and uh, the plumbing stops working and then you're using it as a glorified woodshed, but then you can't even keep a woodshed without work. You know, even a woodshed requires work and maintenance. And um, it's it's an interesting question to figure out when, at what point um, in, in, in the demise of that mansion, People snap out of it, figure out, oh no, okay, maybe we should stop partying all the time and start uh, uh, thinking about our future. But um, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think whether we have hit rock bottom right now or not. I think there is a good case to be made that um, you know the last twenty years or so was rock bottom in many ways, and uh, Bitcoin might really be the reversal of this. Bitcoin is causing a lot of people from all over the world, from all kinds of cultures and civilizations and religions and traditions to make this connection, to wake up and realize, oh, hang on a second, building this mansion took a lot of effort by my grandparents and I need to live up to it. And you see this happening with so many people across Bitcoin. Um, Maybe it's the internet, uh, another part of it, maybe it's not Bitcoin, maybe it's the internet allowing people to read all kinds of um, different uh, sources about the past that won't really usually fit into the dominant propaganda of the present where everything is the best that it has ever been thanks to our glorious leaders. Um, I think people are beginning to question that kind of stuff. And uh, Bitcoin might just be the, um, again, going back to the question of causality, is Bitcoin causing this or is Bitcoin a consequence of this? Or is Bitcoin's growth a consequence of the fact that uh, we're getting this? But I think, um, yeah, the causality is perhaps not as important as witnessing this um, kind of transformation taking place. Yeah, I, traditionally, I think uh, rock bottom tends to be uh, at the end of a war <laughs> when when everything is destroyed. So, you know, your, your uh, woodshed is completely gone and then you appreciate, okay, all right, that's, that's what it took. Hopefully we don't have to go down quite that far uh, and we can reverse things before that happens. Um, and maybe Bitcoin is the way in which that happens. But I, I do fear that maybe, maybe um, you know, that's, that's what's required for us to really appreciate it is to lose it all. Um, and, you know, th- this is something that I've learned from some people, you know, uh, from Europe in particular, who are talking about like class differences. And for them, it isn't about money, right? The difference between an upper class person and a lower class person isn't the amount of money they make. There's plenty of lower class people that make a lot of money. Uh, many of them are like soccer players or something like that. Uh, the thing that makes, uh, at least for them, and this was from, I think, somebody that was upper class, is that uh, for an upper class person, the work ethic is what uh, what what what's different between you and uh, you know somebody somebody else is that you are always willing to work hard, um, and that that's that was what was instilled in them as an upper class person, uh, and that wasn't a perspective that I heard I, I had heard before, but it, it kind of makes sense if you are going to sort of like perpetuate um, wealth uh, with a legacy and be able to do that on a continual basis. 
um, yeah, you, you have to have the mentality that you're always going to be maintaining uh, the house uh, in your analogy, that you're always going to be trying to improve it. Um, I, I believe this is what happened with like the great families of the past that, uh, you know, often uh, were, you know, around for hundreds of years, like, um, and, you know, did, did lots of very, uh, you know, made great buildings and cities and things like that. It's, uh, it's passing down of values, which is uh, ultimately what, what needs to happen in order for uh, civilization to continue. Very much so. Speaking, speaking of families, you happen to have a big family of six children. And in your book, you also mentioned that you think uh, as uh, people lower their time preference, they're going to have larger families. What is your case for having six kids? <laughs> <laughs> Well, my case for having a lot of kids, first of all, uh, once you're past like 75 or so, uh, you, if, you, if you study older people, almost always uh, their happiness is uh, largely dependent on their relationships with their kids. Uh, clearly, if you have no kids, then you're generally going to be much more miserable because all your friends are dying around you. You don't have kids. So there's no real connection to the rest of the world. Um, at, but if you and if you only have one kid, that's a lot of burden to put on one person, and you're really putting all your eggs in one basket, right? Because you know that that kid doesn't work out, or you know, doesn't have a good relationship with you, or doesn't continue the line, or something like that. It's it's going to be very difficult. Um, but if you have uh, lots of kids, then it's uh, it, it's a lot easier, even if uh, you screw up with a couple of them or a couple of them get screwed up. Um, you know, you you at least have, you know, some of the other ones, and hopefully you can at least have a good relationship with some of them. So in a way, I would make that as sort of like the selfish argument for having lots of kids, because in your old age, you are much more likely to have a uh, have a good relationship with at least one of them. Um, the other argument that I would give is that you are going to, um, you know, be able to leave a legacy. And, uh, you know, I, I, I read a, a blog post by Philip Greenspun a while back, and he's, um, he's a fairly famous professor at MIT. And he was, he was mentioning that, you know, like he's had literally thousands of students and he's known a lot of people, very important people. A lot of his students have been important and so on. He's like, you know, um, the only people I actually call are my parents and my kids. And I was like, huh. And I haven't received a call from any of my students in, in the last week, but I, I've called my mom like three times and I've called my children like five times. The people that are uh, that you affect the most isn't aren't like abstract that, you know, that you might, uh, affect in some small way. Um, the, the people that you affect most deeply are the people that are your family. Um, and if you want to leave an impact in the world, that's the way to do it. It's, that would be my other argument. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to add another thing you taught me, which is that after three, they're free, right? <laughs> yeah. A, a lot of people uh, recognize that you go from man to man with uh with two kids, and then you go to zone defense with three, which makes it quite hard. What a lot of people don't know is that at four, you go back to man-to-man because -man the oldest one starts helping. So that's why they're free. 
Yeah. So basically, after you know your fourth kid is essentially a self-correcting problem. In fact, it's it, it takes away from you because now your older kid has something to do. They're fascinated with this new little thing. They're old enough to be able to help, and they relish the responsibility of uh, being able to help. And so now you know you have <laughs> you have le- <laughs> less things to uh, worry about, one less person to entertain, at least. Um, I, uh, yeah, I think it was you that told me that uh, it's the parents that learn more than the kids when you have kids. It's also the kids that learn the most when you know they're having to take care of other kids too. So yeah, I, absolutely. I think um, the, you know the the, the parents are, the, the parents raise sorry the, the the kids raise the parents because um, until you have kids, you're <laughs> this is this might um, piss some people off, but I think you know until you have kids. You're more or less playing life on demo mode. It's <laughs> kind of, uh, you know, you, you're living your life, you know, it, you can do a lot of very difficult and very important things, but like the stakes aren't high. There isn't a child that's going to starve if you mess up. And that's just another totally different level of responsibility. You know, before you have a child that is dependent on you, you can do stupid things, and the worst thing that can happen is that you die, you know, um, which is tragic uh, for you and for people who love you. But I think it's another level of tragic if you leave behind a starving child uh, or you leave behind a child who is, um, who's not going to have a parent. So it really teaches your responsibility in a very, very uh, real way. You have to up your game and you have to deliver and you have to have food on the table every day and you have to have everything working out. The kids need to be clean and fed and <clears throat> and to do all of those things. And honestly, um, that's the only time most of us will <laughs> ever mature. Like it's uh, before then, you know, you can get away with um, a lot, but when you have a kid, you can't. And so that's, that's, I really think that's when you mature, you know, the kids will raise you, but they will grow really by force of nature. You just need to put food on the table and then they'll eat it and they'll learn to talk, they'll learn to walk and they'll soon be on the internet and they'll discover everything that they want to discover. Um, you don't have to do much for kids uh, in order to grow, but you have to take responsibility and th- that's what makes you grow and mature. <laughs> Yeah, I, you're you're the gardener, they're the plant, or whatever. Yeah, it it really is kind of like that. Yeah. All right. Um, Peter has a question for you. Thanks for sharing your insights today, Jimmy. That was that was really interesting for me. I had a question on a medium article you wrote last year um, called "The Moral Case for Bitcoin," which kind of ties mm-hmm. into some of the conversation we've been having around the uh, the the Christian uh, ethical case. And in that article, you make this distinction between natural rights and positive conceptions of morality and build up an argument to say that if you're someone who supports, say, a natural, a, a natural rights conception, then it makes sense to support sound money that can't be confiscated and stuff. And my question was, why, can you talk us through a little bit what these two conceptions of morality are? And do you think that most people these days tend to have a more positive conce- positivist conception of morality because it certainly seems that more and more, particularly as we move into a world dominated by you know, governments with certain prescriptive policies regarding uh, how we should deal with coronavirus, 
people tend more and more just to accept that there are rules that the government has decided on, and therefore this is what we need to do from an ethical perspective. Do you, do you worry that the positive conception of morality is getting getting stronger amongst the general population? And how should yeah. we make a stronger case for natural rights? Yeah, um, and that that uh, article was written while I was uh, you know writing the book with my co-authors, and it, it's something that I wanted to write as sort of like if we remove Christianity, what other basis can I make this argument? And natural rights versus positivism um, turned out to be a pretty pretty good one. Uh, so just to review, natural rights is the idea that we have rights already, right? Like uh, freedom uh, of life, freedom of liberty, freedom to pursue happiness, freedom of property. Um, these are rights that we already have. And uh, if anyone violates them, including the government, that they are in the wrong. This was why, for example, the United States, um, America uh, declared independence from Britain. That was their argument, is that you are violating our natural rights, therefore it is legitimate for us to uh, declare independence. Uh, the positivist uh, sort of morality or the role of government in that, uh, in that case is basically the government defines what is right and wrong. So they are the definers of morality in that sense. So if the government says it is illegal for you to... Um, cut hair for money, uh, you know, uh, then it is wrong for you to do it without that license. Um, the thing I point out in that article is that every uh, government that has been the most evil in the world, all of them have been completely positivist. This is uh, Nazi Germany, Stalinist Russia, Mao's China, and many others, uh, where uh, you have the government defining for the people what is right and wrong. And that, that tends to lead down a slippery slope of the government can take away the right to your life because they say you're not worth, uh, you're, you're not worth keeping alive or whatever. Um, so that, that I think is just completely immoral. But it does have um, some, uh, some easiness for governments because it is very easy to enforce uh, if you just have a positive mentality. And I count a lot of like uh, intellectuals on the left, uh, like their argument ultimately comes down to, well, that's the law and you have to obey the law. Well, then they're not thinking from a natural rights perspective. They're just saying, well, you know, you might not like it, but that's the law and we have to obey the law. If you want to change it, then, you know, you have to get a majority to agree or something like that. That's not a real argument, right? That's just, okay, that's the status quo and you have to obey the status quo because it's the status quo. It's, a, it's kind of circular. Um, and, and you need some sort of basis for natural rights. Again, Hoppe and, uh, and, and Rothbard try very hard to do it without God. I, I find them a little wanting, uh, but it is possible. And you, you don't have to, uh, you know, believe in God in order to believe that we have natural rights. Uh, but, but that's, at least for me, the most natural way uh, to arrive at having natural rights is, uh, is by believing in God. Um, but if you don't, that's okay too. It's it's still possible. But but there is a tendency for governments to go in that positivist direction, and that's essentially what we've seen for the last year and a half. Is that most governments are very much positivist, and they they are willing to say, um, you can't do that, and uh, you know forget about your right to assembly, which I think is a natural right. <laughs> your your right to. Uh, you know, like liberty, right? Like going wherever, wherever you want, uh, you know, that, that 
you know, if uh, somebody invites you to their home, you should be able to go to their home, um, even if there's 10 people already there or whatever. Um, you know, the, these are these are things that I would view as natural rights, which the government has violated. So these should be illegitimate laws. And that's how, like, English common law for a long time was judged, was, okay, what are your natural rights? And then, you know, what makes sense in that way? Um, and, and English common law is one of the greatest things for civilization all over the world, right? Like, uh, you know, Hong Kong thrived on the English common law. Um, and there, there are various parts of the world, including the U- U.S., that, that thrived under it. Um, that, that, that kind of uh, um, way of jurisprudence, I think, is, is much more effective for civilization. Positivism leads down some really bad uh paths. And uh, I think, unfortunately, we're kind of headed that way right now. Um, and, you know, a lot of people are just really used to rule following and wanting to do uh, whatever the government says, because they're in sort of like that mindset where, where okay, government is, uh, you know, whatever the government says, I have to obey. Um, and it, it's kind of sad that I, I've seen this, especially with Christians, where Churches are having a who can be the best rule follower contest uh, rather than actually thinking about natural rights or what God might want. Um, but that's that's uh, the unfortunate reality. But then then again, it might be good because then you, you purify and you have a remnant that is more dedicated towards, uh, you know, the protection of liberty and doing the right thing instead of doing the convenient thing, which is follow the rules. Um, yeah. Nathan has Thank a question. You. Yeah, Jimmy, uh, I know this is kind of a broad question, but could you share what your thoughts are on the current status of Bitcoin governance? Um, mm. main, mainly, I'm, I'm curious, you don't hear much in the layman's news regarding the motivation behind development. What are the priorities, uh, and and how strong is the current development community? Yeah, uh, funny you mentioned that because I'm about to release a podcast on Thursday that uh, that uh, with a core developer where we talk exactly about that, um, which is okay. What's the development process like? Who's doing what? And um, I, and I think once you hear it, you'll recognize that it is very decentralized. You have a lot of people with very different ideas, um, and the only things that get in are things that have consensus that are you know approved essentially by by a lot of people. Um, and uh, you know the the way he described uh, and the the guy that I interviewed is Carl Johan Ham, who's uh, who's been a core contributor for quite a number of years now. And, uh, and the way he describes it is, you know, like, you know, you, you have in the core development community, lots of people with lots of different values and lots of different, even political perspectives. He's like, we probably have, you know, libertarians in there and socialists in there and, you know, all kinds of people. Like, if we didn't have Bitcoin to unite us, we would probably try to kill each other. I think that's like a direct code, something like that. Um, there, there is, kind of no real governance it's just done by consensus and um encourage you to listen to the episode to get like sort of a full hearing on that but it it really is very much like uh 
you know, you propose something and you get people to review it. And if, and if enough people review it and it's the consensus and you've made the changes that they've asked you to make and, uh, you know, everyone thinks it's good, then then it gets merged in. Um, and it's backwards compatible. It's, uh, you know, no one has to use it. It's optional for you to use it. Um, uh, and, you know, there there's no like, uh, roadmap or anything like that. It's not anything like traditional development where you say, okay, we're going to get these things done in, in six months or 12 months, which is what every altcoin does. Uh, it, it's instead, okay, well, here's some ideas that a lot of people, uh, a lot of different people have. Uh, let's see what the community wants and, and, and go from there. And uh, there, there's a great part where we talk about the difference between Taproot and Drive Chains. Uh, Taproot uh, you know, how, how it came about and all, all of the changes that uh, Peter Wola had to make because of some of the issues that were brought up by reviewers. Whereas Paul Stork with BIP300 and Drive Chains, like, yeah, he, he just refuses to engage with the community. So, of course, it's not going anywhere. So, uh, really, really interesting stuff. Uh, I would encourage you to listen to that to get a full uh, sort of view overview of it. Anybody else have more questions? Well, there's one uh, question I wanted to bring up. Um, in your book, you discuss um, the relationship between uh, Marx and uh, Goethe's uh, Faust. Could you tell us uh -huh. a little bit more about that and why you chose to include it in a book on Bitcoin? Yeah, uh, so uh, obviously uh, Karl Marx is the founder of Marxism, communism, socialism. All of these terms come from his communist manifesto. Um, but yeah, the, the whole um, thing about Marx was that, uh, you know, I, I read this book, The Devil and Karl Marx, and uh, there were biographical things in there that were just absolutely astonishing. Like, uh, one of the things that he had done in, uh, uh, like, just sort of a, a, as a person was he memorized large passages of what Mephistopheles was saying in uh, in Faust, and you know, the uh, among them was, you know, Mephistopheles basically telling the king, "Why don't you sell claims to the gold that aren't dug up yet?" Um, this was sort of like an early version of inflation. Um, and, uh, and, you know, he, he memorized all of that because he, he thought that the devil in a sense was the hero of the story. Uh, and you know, it, it was a, it was a very good sort of connection because that's directly in the communist manifesto where he says, uh, you know, uh, money controlled entirely by a central government, um, and of course, he he was an ardent atheist, and every uh, every communist since then has been an ardent atheist. Um, and you know, they've of course uh, acted like it uh, to sort of like bring it back to like the positivist versus natural rights. Uh, Marxists are all positivists. It's either uh, the government gets to tell you what to do, uh, the government defines what is moral, the government gets to uh, you know define what your life should be. And, uh, and every communist government uh, from Pol Pot's Cambodia to, uh, you know, oh, gosh, there, there's so many Eastern European smaller ones, but obviously Stalin's Russia and, uh, uh, and Mao's China, like they, they basically told everybody exactly what to do, right? Like um, 
I, I believe in Cambodia, they even eliminated money, right? Like they literally had no uh, like currency uh, during, during probably one of, like on a per capita basis, one of the worst democides of, uh, of history, period. Like they killed like 10% of their own people. Or yeah, something. Whenever, communists, uh, whenever a communist tells me, you know, real communism has never been tried, I tell them, yeah, <laughs> it's just true. It's never been tried, but we have come close in Cambodia. And check <laughs> yeah. out how, that well, how, how well that worked out. Yeah, that and and it's absolutely crazy to me uh, that that he's still taken seriously uh, by people. But uh, but that's that's something that I wanted to point out in the book is how much of his ideas have sort of like penetrated, uh, you know, society. Uh, one, one of the things I found out from that book, The Devil and Karl Marx, you could go look it up on Amazon, um, is that, you know, basically Comintern, which was uh, Communist International, which was out of the USSR, the the first um, communist country, um, they penetrated a lot of different organizations um, starting in the 30s. So, you know, they would, for example, have like a peace uh, organization and they would, you know, get uh, uh, cooperate with lots of other organizations and then get into the leadership and basically spew communist propaganda. And if that sounds familiar, that's exactly what happened with Black Lives Matter, right? Like they, uh, they made, they made a slogan that's very hard to um, be against. Uh, but then they're essentially spewing communist propaganda, but they were all, all, all of these organizations, uh, you know, they penetrated a ton of organizations, including Hollywood, the media, academia, and so on. Um, and, you know, one of the field operatives said, you know, w- we only need like 1% of an organization to be communist before we can take over their leadership. That's that's how effective that sort of pop, uh, campaign was. And unfortunately, that lives to, to this day, um, you know, uh, and yeah, it, it's kind of sad and you really need to fight against it because it really is a death cult, uh, as, uh, as some people like to call it. It's... Uh, you know, it, it's uh, murders more people um, than anything else, and it is extremely decivilizing. Just people, um, for some reason, refuse to see that whenever they talk about communism. Very much so. I, I entirely agree with you on that. I think. Um, anybody else have any more questions for Jimmy? I can go with a full up one, safe if you'd like. Yeah, go ahead. So I wanted to ask you about your views on gold, Jimmy, because Mm. in your book, Thank God for Bitcoin, you state that the world has now moved beyond gold. You don't think that it would be possible for the world to move back to a gold standard. For example, in the event that Bitcoin somehow failed, somehow wasn't successful, you don't think we could go back to gold because we now live in a totally digitized world. And so I wanted to just ask you a bit about, about that, do you not do you not think it would be possible for there to be to be some sort of like digital equivalent um, whereby currencies were settled in gold if you know Bitcoin our preferred option was was not successful? All right, so I'm going to quote from the book that exact section. Uh, why not return to gold? Like a dog that returns to its vomit, so is a fool who repeats his foolishness. So this is Proverbs twenty six eleven. And we put that verse there, and it was a little controversial. We argued about it for a while uh, as, as a group of authors. But we put that verse there because 
it really is like kind of like going back to something that ultimately ended up creating fiat money. I, I blame the centralization of gold for the creation of fiat money. It started with fractional reserve banking. It eventually ended up as like pure, pure fiat money as a result of 1971 when, you know, all fiat current, all currencies essentially became fiat. Um, there, there, if we go back to gold, that temptation will always be there uh, to, uh, you know, fractionally reserved because even like gold vaults now, like the big one in London, they lend out gold that they don't have. They fractional reserve lend because they can and not everyone is going to go and redeem it at once or so they think. Um, so I, I don't think it can work. And, uh, you know, as Safety points out in his new book, uh, you know, the saleability across space is a major advantage of digitization. And, uh, and you, you can try to settle it, but there, there's no way to do it in a self-sovereign manner. Um, and that, the, that temptation to like go back to your own vomit and eat it, which is basically turning gold into fiat money, will always be there. Um, and I, I don't think that's something that we can really get past. Um, it, I, I really do think in a sense, like it, it's either Bitcoin or nothing. I, I don't know. Um, maybe there's some other innovation that can come along that, that can make it uh, you know, give us a third alternative. But to me, it, that, uh, that, that's ultimately why the, the digitization, um, in terms of trade. And this is something that we point out in chapter two, all of these monetary innovations, including like coins and, uh, you know, uh, bills and, uh, you know, uh, current, you know, paper currency that was backed by gold, all of that was ultimately done to make trade easier, uh, to make saleability across space easier. Um, and if you, if you don't have that in today's economy, you take a massive step back. Um, the only way like gold can really be self-sovereign is if you ha- hold like ounces of gold and then you like physically transfer it. I don't think that's practical in today's economy. Uh, and you, so either you lose self-sovereignty uh, or you, know, you, you have to centralize it in order to make it work. Or, um, you know, you lose saleability across time um, and you need both in order for sound money to work. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jimmy, for joining us. This was uh, really um, eye-opening and fun as always, as all discussions with you. Um, Where can people find out more about you and your work and your podcast and all of your interesting stuff that you do? Uh, I, you can find me on Twitter at Jimmy Song. Uh, my website is programmingbitcoin.com. And, you know, I have a newsletter, jimmysong.substack.com, that you can uh, subscribe to. Uh, it's, uh, it comes out every Monday. And, yeah, you, uh, th- those are the places that you can find me. All right. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much. And uh, I'm sure we'll be having you again on this uh, seminar. Take care. Uh, thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye. 